Hi, I'm Louise Anderson, and you're listening to Humans of Law. In today's episode, I'm joined by Oscar Davies, a practicing barrister at Lamb Chambers who covers areas such as commercial employment, property and more. Oscar made headlines last year when they became the UK's first barrister to publicly identify as non-binary and use the gender-neutral mix as an honorific at their chambers. Myself and Oscar have a really good discussion about the reality of working as a barrister, why legal TV shows don't paint an honest picture of the profession, and what it's like to be an LGBT plus legal icon. So, hi Oscar, welcome to the Humans of Law podcast. Hi Louise. Where we um, talk to real people working in the legal industry and find out who they are, uh, what makes them tick, what gets them excited and hear about their stories. So, um, first question, could you please give us a brief introduction to yourself? Yeah, um, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So, I'm Oscar Davies. Um, I'm a barrister at Lamb Chambers. Um, My pronouns are they, them. Um, I have a broad civil practice. So, this covers uh, commercial work, employment, uh, landlord and tenant, um, personal injury, and international work as well. Um, I am in court most days, um, so I do that. Sometimes it's remote, sometimes it's in person. I'd say probably at the moment about 70% is remote um, and the rest is in person. I also do bits of paperwork, uh, which is usually writing specialist advice for solicitors or drafting pleadings um, when you set out what the case is about for the court. Brilliant. That's so varied. So varied. Usually when we speak to solicitors, they have quite a niche practice, Um, whereas it sounds yours is huge. Yeah, I mean, I think um, when you start at the bar, it can be beneficial to keep your practice broad um, because you don't necessarily know which uh, specific area you're going to be best at or that you'll like the most. Um, so it kind of suits me at the moment to be doing a few different areas. I mean, the areas that I don't do at all are crime, um, family and immigration. Um, I don't do them at all. My chambers doesn't do them, um, but I don't really have much knowledge of them, um, I suppose, other than what I learned on the bar course. Um, but yeah, so I mean, for me, it's kind of... Um, good to have a broad practice in terms of my journey I suppose to the bar um, this is relevant because I did well to start with I did history and French at King's College London um, undergrad then I did the law conversion at City and I did the bar course also at City um, on the bar course I got pupillage at um, chambers called One Brit Court and that was actually a media law chambers so that's super specific um, then later that year, before I started pupillage, the chambers actually dissolved. So my pupillage dissolved along with it, which oh, was no. obviously very stressful. I was during that year, I was um, basically being an intern in the European Court of Justice, which was really cool. But then when I got back, uh, yeah, the the chambers was basically dissolving. So oh, I had gosh. to get. Yeah, I had to get a new pupillage kind of emergency uh, measures. Um, and 
I ended up going to Outer Temple, which is much broader practice than one brick court. Outer Temple does basically employment, personal injury, commercial pensions, that sort of stuff, um, which I suppose is kind of why I'm in a more broad position now. Um, and then I went to Lamb after Outer Temple. So, and Lamb has a similar areas, except for it also does property and construction. Um, but I suppose as a sort of foreboding of whether, you know, I should try and specialize immediately. Well, the, the people that I'd originally got was in media law. Um, that was super specialist. The set dissolved, um, presumably for many reasons, but one of them could have been that there just wasn't enough work in simply defamation privacy um, law. I don't know. Um, but I suppose now I'm in a position where I can focus on lots at once. And, you know, I enjoy the challenge of that. But also, I think I've seen what uh, being in such a niche specialism can do if you take it maybe too far or if you specialize too early and then you can't, I don't know, um, you can't change as easily into what your focus is. Um, so in a way, I suppose I do have a broad practice, but it makes sense in terms of my previous exp experience and also in terms of how I suppose junior I still am um, in that it's much harder to diversify your practice later on than to keep it fairly diverse and then specialize rather than the other way around. So that's why I think it works for me. So being able to explore all of those areas for longer than, say, the traditional training contract route where you only have six months before you have to decide, I think that's that sounds far more uh, varied and interesting. And, you know, being able to learn all those different areas of law will make you a better barrister in the longer run I would assume yeah I mean you know my weeks are so varied mm. um you know I'll have a few possession hearings to attend in person I'll then have some sort of company law advice to do on a specific company law matter I'll then be in the employment tribunal in the same week uh, and then maybe some more you know, high, high end stuff. If I'm juniorring, uh, I'm at the moment, I'm juniorring on a court of appeal matter. Uh, so, you know, there's all, it's pretty varied. And because of that, I think it's quite hard to get bored. Um, you know, I have some friends who say, oh, well, I'm very bored of this work week. And I say, well, my work week is intense, but I can't, I don't really have time to get bored because mm. you just have kind of, you know, you have so many deadlines in a week. If you count a hearing as a deadline, which it effectively is, then you're, for me, I generally have one per day. And oh then gosh. sometimes on top of that, written work deadlines. So like last week, I think I had four written work deadlines. So then that's what, nine deadlines in a week, um, which is like, sounds really crazy. But to be honest, you just get used to it after a while. Do you you? Just like, right, okay, I need to do this, this and this. And yeah, sometimes you have to work long hours. Um, not all the time, obviously, um, but essentially it's kind of worth it because you have so much variation. And as a barrister, if you're working in chambers and if you're self-employed, if you're busier, you're getting paid more. So, you know, it's different from if you're just getting paid pro rata and you're being forced to work crazy hours and you're not really getting any monetary benefit from it. Whereas you're, if you're busier as a barrister, self-employed, generally speaking, you get 
like more money, I guess. Mm. <laughs> mm. Is it stressful? Because um, I imagine there are lots of people listening to this mm. program thinking, oh, gosh, you know, the, 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 that is a lot of deadlines to handle um, in one week. Yeah. And a lot of areas of law to learn and research and clients to represent. And, and then the added layer of needing to constantly be hustling um, <laughs> for your, your pay packet at the end of the day. Is that something that exhilarates you or do you find that quite a stressful situation? I mean, obviously... Yeah, obviously deadlines are always going to be stressful, but I think by this point I'm to some extent like desensitized by the stress because it happens so frequently. So, you know, if you have that many frequent deadlines, you just have to get on with it. There's no point panicking. I mean, I used to, I suppose at the start, yeah, I used to have a big, you know, massive deadline and I'll panic a bit and then I'd waste time panicking. Whereas now I just, there's just not not enough time for that. So I think also, you know, being a barrister is not for the faint hearted, i.e. you have to know that you're going to go in and it's going to be intense work. But because of because of how frequent the deadlines are, you also get a lot of reward from it. So, you know, it's not as if you're doing a job where you're just sending emails all the time, like you will finish a piece of work, send it to the solicitor. Hopefully, you know, it will be finished and then you bill it and then that's done and you get like a little you know dopamine kick or whatever because you've done something or you are in court you know battling for your client and you get a win or you get partial win or something and that's also really rewarding because you you know it's basically like you, these things happen so frequently so it keeps you on your toes but it's actually really fun in a way um because yeah. it's not just like meaningless back and forth corporate corporate life which you know some some parts of law can be mm. it's like you kind of get to do what you're asked to do um you send your attendance note or you send back the piece of work which should be like to a very high standard and then you're basically done for that specific thing so it's quite nice because you get lots of kind of easy gratification not not easy but like degrees of gratification job satisfaction yeah exactly whereas you know I sometimes speak to friends who work in different uh, different areas and they say well yeah I'm just sending emails all day and it's just a bit annoying whereas it seems like you know when you do a hearing you're like oh yeah, yeah I've done a hearing kind of thing and you mm. it, hopefully have got the result that you want so there is a degree of satisfaction but yeah I mean you have to go in being like you need to be super organized, super prepared. Most of your hearings are based on your preparation as well anyway. And so you, yeah, you do have to be really organized with your time and everything as well. Um, yeah. It sounds intense. <laughs> yeah. What, um, when you were thinking of becoming a barrister, um, mm. no doubt you had watched some legal programs as we all do on TV. <laughs> Uh, yeah. What is the biggest difference between um, what you see in the media about being a barrister and then the reality? So most of the programs, well, there's, I suppose, I, to be honest, I actually try not to watch the legal programs because they are actually confusing when you're trying to learn about being a barrister because they oh, like teach you bad tip. tricks yeah yeah because yeah. I remember in bar school the the tutors were always like okay 
don't watch the programs because they'll mislead you and then you'll get into bad habits ah. and you'll be doing things in cross-examination which you're not absolutely not allowed to do um i mean some obvious ones are in the american ones you know like the good wife and stuff like this when yeah, they love the good wife by the way yeah yeah so my friend made me watch it i actually did like it to be fair but um you know they're they're very dramatic and like you know, they'll be like, objection, beyond the scope, like yeah. all these things. <laughs> um, but we don't do that in English advocacy because um, it's more, it's not about like shouting across and it's more about a more subtle way of advocacy where, you know, the most rude thing you'll say about your opponent is like, you'll be like, my learned friend's argument is misconceived. And like misconceived is pretty much the rudest thing you can say. <laughs> um rather than Very British isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so you almost have to imagine like the more toned down version but the British way of uh you know shading your opponent or whatever you want to do um and yeah in terms of obviously you've got suits and then the, I think there's a new American one called that uh, sorry English one called the uh, is it do you know that one the split or something oh no I don't know. That one. anyway the English one's I've only watched a bit, but I mean, the main, the main lesson is that if you are planning on being a barrister, um, you don't, you shouldn't really get your training from the TV shows. I mean, they yeah, do give you a really, bit, really good they tip. do give you a bit of an idea of what the life is like, as in, you know, going, turning up to court and like all of this kind of stuff. But ultimately you need to do advocacy in the way that you're taught on the bar course and, or by your supervisors rather than um by the tv because inevitably you know they dramatize that's the whole yeah. point of tv and it's not always true um but a lot of the time yeah when you're in court it's not always that dramatic it's mm. sometimes just like a boring point of law which you have mm. to discuss or a fun point of law yeah, mm. i remember when i was at school and they took us on a school trip to a, see a court case i was yeah. like oh this is not like it is in the movies <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's very Less rare exciting. that you, very <laughs> rare that you get like so a murder much more dramatic, something. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, also because, you know, I work in civil civil law. I mean, it can sometimes be really interesting, but it's not going to be the same sort of juice as like a murder trial in the Crown Court or something. Mm. You know, that's more, that's more, I, I think that's more interesting to the general public rather than civil, which is generally speaking about money and or human rights um yeah it's not about like who killed who or who stole who robbed the bank <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah. a there's an instagram uh no sorry a twitter account called inappropriate gavels oh i know that yeah it's so good yeah, yeah. so this is a <laughs> this is a good example of when it's um falsified for, for anyone who doesn't know the twitter account uh, inappropriate gavels is every time that some sort of show or in fact just anything any media related thing uses yeah. a gavel because we don't use gavels in the UK system at least to say you know order order no one does yeah. that and especially we don't use gavels so no that is a good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um so you studied history and French yeah at what point and why did you decide to go into law? Yeah, so um, I suppose when I was choosing my A-levels, law was always an interesting option, but I wasn't exactly sure if I wanted to do that when I was 18. So I thought, you know, let's just do 
subject or subjects which I like and that I'm good at. And so that's why I did history and French because I liked both of them and I was good at them. So I was just like, okay, this is kind of a safer option than doing a law degree at such a young age. And I think, you know, that's probably applicable to loads of people. Um, and then when I was at, yeah, when I was at uni, I was thinking about, you know, do I want to be a diplomat or maybe a journalist or maybe a lawyer? And then these were the kind of ones that I thought about. Um, and then whilst I was at uni, I was able to do some mini pupillages. I did some vacation schemes to kind of get some ideas of if I was going to do law, which, which side I'd go into. Um, and I found that the barrister side was more interesting to me in terms of, you know, you can go to court, you can explain your client's case. Um, you really get this kind of on your feet fun side, which maybe you, you don't get as much as a solicitor. Um, and so then, yeah, then I decided to do the law conversion um, and then the bar course as well, just followed on from that. So I suppose that's how I came through to it. But yeah, in terms of the, the use or lack of use of, you know, doing a law degree to start with, and obviously for your, for your listeners, they may, they may be at that stage as well, or maybe after, but I think something to say is that, um, you know, just because you don't do an undergrad law degree doesn't mean you can't be a barrister so or a solicitor because I would say probably about 50% of the people in my kind of age group did a non-law degree and you know just because you're not doing it for three years doesn't make it you less qualified of course the law conversion is like a very intense year they kind of put three three years into one and if you are thinking of doing a law conversion you need you need to mentally prepare yourself for that intensity um of just you know learning like all, all the time and then having your final exams in June um because that is pretty crazy but at the same time I'm so glad I did a French and history undergrad because I mean I still speak French for example now fluently which is great um the history side was good for analysis and lots of the similar kind of analytical tools you use for history you, you use when doing uh, legal analysis. So actually, I don't regret doing a non-law undergrad at all. Um, and I'd say if you're not sure when you're 17, 18, there's you know no point that you should force yourself into doing a law degree when you know that you're good at something which is transferable obviously some top some subjects are more easily transferable than others um and I'm not going to say which ones because I think that could cause some arguments but you know you can obviously ask your teachers and everything which ones they think could be easily transferable to law um but ultimately yeah I'm happy with the way that I went about it obviously if you really want to do a law undergrad and you're sure you want to be a barrister or sister then go ahead um but and, and obviously the, the course will be shorter as well. It'll be three years undergrad and then you'll then the bar course it will be another year. So you can do that in four years. Mine was six years in total because my undergrad had a four, four years with a year abroad um, and then the law conversion another year and then the bar course another year. So obviously it's taken longer to get here, um, but at the same time, I don't regret it because you know that broader experience can also help you. Mm. You have such a well-rounded um, CV. 
history, French, <laughs> every <Yeah>. area of law. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> Lots of our listeners will uh, be going through this process at the moment in securing pupillage and mm. The, the data shows that becoming a barrister is even more competitive than going down the solicitor route. Um, can you describe that process? Um, you know, in your in your experience, did you find it difficult in securing pupillage? Do you have any tips for anyone listening? Yeah, I th- I mean, securing pupillage seems like a kind of the impossible task. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Mm. Um, although it's also important to acknowledge that it isn't impossible because um, you know there's X amount of places and someone's got to get those places at the end of the day. Um, I think, yeah, I think in terms of getting pupillage, what I would recommend if at all possible is to get a mentor or multiple mentors. And you can get these from organizations such as Bridging the Bar um, or through your inn. If you're a member of an inn, which you, I think you maybe have to join when you're, you're doing a law conversion or, or you should at least if that's what if you want to do the bar um then i think just you need to try and get a mentor who's a barrister because then they can and also who works in the field that you maybe want to go into because they can prove your applications they can tell you what looks good and what looks strange to you know bar professionals i guess um and for me i think you know part of the reason why I was successful. I applied in the law conversion year, didn't get didn't get published that year, but I wasn't really expecting to. I didn't know much law by that by the time in like January, February. Um, and I applied, I, I got it in my second year of applying. So that was yeah, it, during the bar course. Um, and I just know that I had a lot of help from mentors who were really, you know, generous with their time, who are barristers. And I kind of owe it a lot to them in terms of how far I got and also you know even like when something goes wrong like when my pupillage dissolved because my set dissolved like what do I do like lots of my barristers who I knew like they basically helped me in terms of you know writing to the bar standards board or bar council like what do I do in these circumstances um and that's also why it's important because it you know if something goes wrong I you don't get the grade you want to for example, that's just like a, a basic thing that goes wrong. But obviously you have family circumstances and everything. But um, if you don't get a grade you want to, then it's good to speak to a barrister and say, you know, should I try and explain this on my extenuating circumstances? Should I not? Um, or like, what? how should I approach this situation? Because the difficulty with barrister applications is that it can be a lot focused on academics. And um, if you have like one degree or one master's or something which is not that good a result and you don't explain it then that can also shoot you in the foot so I think that's why you know for me when the when the whole pupillage dissolving thing happened it was super helpful to speak to my mentors and be like okay look what what on earth do I do here because this is kind of unprecedented at least for me um so yeah I would say and also I'd say you know, you, yeah, barrister is really hard, but solicitor is also really hard. I mean, getting a training mm-hmm. contract is not straightforward in any way. You have to t- kind of try and get the vacation scheme first and then go on to the training contract. And usually they, hopefully they, they lead on, but they don't always. So 
I suppose it's like, yeah, getting pupillage is hard and, you know, arguably harder in terms of how many pupillage places there are, really how many people are applying versus training contracts. But, um, you know, it's not to say that one is going to be easy, but I think you just have to use everything in your arsenal in order to get you there, have a vision of being like, okay, well, I need to get, I want to get pupillage at this set or this type of set and be like, what are the things that I need to do before that to get in place? pro bono, moot, um, like trying to get high grades, all these things, which are kind of obvious in some ways. Um, and then you just do, you put the, the measures in place and you do the steps. Mm. And by the time that you, you're applying for pupillage, hopefully you'll have a strong, strong CV where you've got all these things kind of lined up. Um, and the other thing to mention is that, you know, most people don't get pupillage until like, the second or third or fourth or fifth round like you you will have people who get it in your cohort in the first year but you have to realize that they are the exception rather than the rule um for example when i didn't get it in the gdl year like and a few of my friends did i was like kind of you know jealous and stuff um but ultimately you realize that mo this doesn't happen to most people and that, that's also fine like sometimes you need more time to develop your legal skills sometimes you come from a different type of subject uh, you know, all these things. Um, so actually, yeah, I think you just have to, you just have to have like a really coherent, coherent, cohesive plan in place mm -hmm. in terms of like having a mentor, doing the, all the extras, focusing on your academics. And it can seem like you're juggling tons of things at once, which you are, but ultimately that's also like kind of how you have to deal with practice. So mm, if you can't I was about juggle to say them, that. It's good yeah. Like if you can't juggle those things, then is the bar ready for you? Mm. Maybe not um because you do have to be really you know self-driven and Resilient. you will be working on a wednesday evening at like 11 p.m sometimes and that's just the way it is and you know you just have to like suck it up but <laughs> it's yeah. also fine if you if you don't really mind because you do have benefits in other ways like you you know for example when you're a tenant at least you don't have to you don't have to have FaceTime, um, I don't know, in the office that much, especially in remote in remote working. Whereas I think sometimes law firms can be a bit a bit like, what time are you tapping in and tapping out? Are you doing enough overtime to justify mm. this magic circle salary or you know, this type of mm. thing? Whereas I can just do my work at home, come into chambers when I want to. It's much more flexible in a way. So you definitely do have advantages as well, um, which you know you have to take into account. You mentioned bridging the bar, yeah, which is all about trying to uh, increase the reach of those going into the profession. Mm. Um, and we spoke previously about social media versus the reality of the profession. And something I would probably say, and you know, hopefully I'm not alone in this, is that the barrister profession in particular from an outsider's point of view, you look in and think, oh, is it is it the most diverse um, profession out there? You know, and I imagine I'm not the only person who looks at it and thinks this might not be for me. Um, would you, now that you're in the profession on the other side, you've got through the process, uh, now that you have a foot in, do you see the profession is, is changing and um, more, you know, different types of people are coming through now? Is that something you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. Um, interestingly, actually, th this was this concern was one of my 
when I did my pros and cons list, when I was doing the law conversion, this was one of the things that actually went against the bar because I considered that looking at things holistically, law firms put much more money into equality and diversity initiatives than, than chambers do. And I remember thinking, I was like, do I, do I necessarily want to be in a profession which is so conservative that it's not really gonna like accept me for who I am and stuff. Um, luckily, I took the leap of faith, I guess, and considered, well, hopefully it's not that bad. Having spoken to barristers, it's not actually that bad. And luckily the reality is, is that, um, you know, prejudice prejudice at the bar i suppose is definitely not overt and if it exists it exists in a covert way but it, it kind of depends because for different minorities it's worse or better so it really depends in terms of which minorities but um for example like bridging the bar is an initiative which is helping people get um, to the bar from non-traditional backgrounds. Um, and that can mean anything. For example, like it's, you know, it's not exactly um, any secret that the bar is very white still. Um, you know, it, you can say pale male and stale, which I think is quite a funny, um, <laughs> I guess, rhyme. Um, but I suppose that's that's more the bar at the upper end of things. And I think that the good thing is that, you know, it's certainly in my um, my kind of age group, it is way more diverse um, than good. it used to be. And initiatives such as Bridging the Bar are going to make it even more diverse. I know there's other social mobility um, initiatives as well. Um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I know there's at least five to 10, which is really good. There's also disability at the bar, which is another one. Um, and for me personally, like, um, I'm part of free bar, which is an LGBT barristers group. Um, I was also the first barrister to come out as non-binary, um, or at least publicly. Um, and this was following my tenancy which was in february last year 2021 and basically um on the boards outside chambers um my chambers administrator was asking oh how do you want your prefix or your honorific to be which is the ms mr mrs part and um i was like well as a non-binary person i would prefer it's if it's mx which is pronounced mix or mix um, so then that was on there and then, um, basically kind of got onto Twitter. I think I might've just uploaded a picture of it and then, um, yeah, the media kind of got a hold of it. Um, and it basically became like some sort of news story, even though I didn't think it was really news story worthy, but it was kind of funny because, you know, like the times interviewed me and like Reuters and these people being like, Oh, how does it feel to be the first, you know, non-binary barrister? Um, and I was like, well, feels just like f like fine good I guess and and I suppose because to me it's a small thing but I suppose in terms of um symbolically it's probably bigger like it's certainly bigger than me um in terms of having non-binary people who work in the legal profession um and having that recognition because you know you don't have legal recognition of non-binary per se in this country 
Um, there was the ex-passports case, which is a land cane, and that the Supreme Court decided that um, we couldn't have X, Xs on passports rather than M or F. And in terms of legislation, there's not really any statute at the moment which mentions non-binary. There is a bit of statute in the works, but it's not um, public yet. So I think also in terms of that, it's, you know, hopefully nice for uh, non-binary slash trans people to see some degree of visibility in the profession, even though obviously I have many other privileges like being white or being perceived as male even, which is, a, I guess, a funny one, because often in court, um, judges will just be like, oh, hello, Mr. Davies. And then I have to kind of make a judgment call as to whether I correct them to mix or whether I just leave it. And, you know, obviously the main thing uh, is my my client's interest and that that's the main important thing. And so if I feel like this particular judge is not going to take it very well, sometimes I'll just not correct them. Or if it's a hearing of, say, half an hour or an hour, then also sometimes I just can't be bothered because it's also a lot of effort for me to do that. Um, the good thing with remote hearings is that I often write in MX Oscar Davies and then they can, you know, choose to get it right. Sometimes they do think it's a spelling error and uh, or they'll just not read it. But um, no, generally, in terms of my experience, the judges have been pretty good. I've never had anyone be like, oh, what is that? They'll just be like, oh, apologies. Um, OK, it's mixed then. Um, so actually, you know, there hasn't been so much pushback in terms of that. And in terms of, I suppose... Yeah, so then following following the, the media publicity, then I made an Instagram account called um, at non-binary barrister. And there I share resources on trans non-binary law, uh, kind of like, I guess, following through my, my mini career a bit, um, but also kind of information sharing so that people can kind of know about their rights, especially in this area, because it's always, it's very fast evolving. There's always cases happening all the time in like trans and non-binary rights. Um, so I try and update people on that. Um, but in terms of pushback, I haven't really had much push, much substantive pushback, I suppose I should say. I think also the thing is that, um, you know, people know that being pushing back on trans and non-binary issues is kind of unpopular, um, you know, at least in lawyer circles. And there are some lawyers who do it, of course. But I think people generally have the sense to, if they do have, say, transphobic views, um, most people won't really mention them. And so that's absolutely fine with me. Like if someone thinks something, but it doesn't affect me, then it just doesn't affect me. It doesn't really matter. Um, and there are some people, obviously, who, who mention that they have transphobic views, but ultimately, fortunately, they're in a minority. So hopefully we're kind of moving towards... Um, a society where trans is more normalized, less vilified, as is non-binary. Um, and yeah, I see that as kind of becoming more normalized, just as they in the singular has become more normalized. Like I was just reading one of my instructions earlier, and probably out of convenience, uh, the solicitors said, uh, the claimant is da, 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 they did this. And it probably means that they have a pro forma, which means that they don't have to change the gender um, when they're talking about who the claimant is. So, you know, it's it's used in the singular way more now, just as I think, you know, being used to trans non-binary kind of issues um, is becoming more, well, 
not mainstream, but more understood. Mm. And it's great that you've been supporting people um, on the journey to understanding more about uh, this topic. Um, Since you've had your media uh, appearances and you've created the Instagram account, have you um, had any nice stories that have come out the back of it? Do people message you or...? yeah quite a lot I mean oh nice yeah it's very humbling like um you know sometimes I'll be yeah like sharing something on my Instagram or whatever and then people will be like oh like this is so nice to hear from you know a young uh, gender non-conforming or like trans person um it's nice to see that you're in you know a, a very conservative profession small c conservative profession um but you're able to like exist and thrive. And I do get, yeah, I get that kind of message like quite a lot, which is, yeah, very humbling. And it's just nice as well, because I feel like, I do feel like some sort of, you know, moral obligation, given that I have this intersection of like um, barrister law and also like non-binary to kind of use that intersection, use that knowledge to help other people. And yeah, I've got... um, yeah, lots of kind of nice, nice messages and stuff. And and I've helped some people pro bono through that as well. So whether they've been, I had one the other day who'd been discriminated um, against at their work um, and we managed to get them a settlement, which was like three times bigger than they originally thought. Wow. So that was really good. Um, so there's a kind of, I suppose, like a direct action side of it. And then the, the broader, like indirect kind of like information sharing one. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's just more about like normalizing, um, you know, a non-binary person at the bar, for example. But it kind of also applies to any intersections and any minorities as well, mm. because, you know, you can't have equality without equity, which means that you have to have intersections and the intersections have to be as equitable as possible. So, Phil, we've we've covered your your story all the way from you know, your your school days through to um, your work that you do at the moment. What's what's next for Oscar Davies? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, next I'm looking to do bigger cases, more exciting cases. Yeah, as I said, I'm doing, I'll have my first Court of Appeal appearance as a junior in a few weeks, which I think will be exciting um and i want to do some more yeah trans and non-binary cases if i can of course um but also just becoming more expert in the fields in which i'm working um so you know broadening my practice um and yeah really just doing i suppose because i'm i'm only really a year and a half um into my practice so i'm still doing I, I am actually doing some really interesting cases, but some of it is very like, much like bread and butter, kind of like, you know, road traffic accidents and stuff, which is fine. But I think like moving forward, I can imagine doing bigger, high, higher profile cases, whatever that means, because that can be, you know, it can be like an important point of, point of law, point of, point of principle um, or anything. But I think the intention is that when you're growing your practice, um, you kind of want to do bigger more important cases maybe get them reported work with more senior people 
to be a junior on their you know more complex cases um and that's what what i am kind of happy to do and then in terms of my i suppose my pro bono work yeah keep on trying to yeah spread spread the message i suppose in terms of trans rights and non-binary rights um i.e that they're just not good enough in this country um and then yeah doing doing my pro bono cases as and when i can um and doing talks and stuff on discrimination which is kind of my side hustle at the moment which is you know nice um because then i can you know i suppose share that what knowledge i have um which is hopefully useful mm. and yeah because because i don't know i just think like um you know knowledge is power information is power so if people understand their rights or if you can even explain something in a clear way um then that's great for all the people who who are listening and it's it's good for you as well so yeah great oscar it's been a pleasure if anyone wants to follow your progress um how are they best following yeah so um i have a twitter which i sometimes post on but mainly just retweet on uh that's at oscar underscore davies underscore and then uh, if you want to follow my instagram uh, it's at non-binary barrister um and then if you want to instruct me on a case if you're a solicitor or if you're a lay client i'm also direct access qualified which means you don't always need a solicitor they can um type in oscar davies lamb chambers and then they can get my clerk's email from there um so yeah that's probably the best way to do it <laughs> yeah great thank you oscar um, yeah thank you for having me incredibly honest and open really appreciate you coming onto our podcast and telling us your story thank you thank you louise it's been very lovely to meet you (laughs) yeah humans of law is a podcast produced by flex legal an award-winning online platform connecting interim paralegals and lawyers to the teams that need their support Learn more about what Flex can do for you at flex.legal. Thanks for listening.